everyone. Welcome to The Sword and Laser. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. And we are very happy to be joined today by author Brian McClellan. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for, so much for inviting me on. We made it, finally. We succeeded. Yay. Technical problems aside, and we are we are good to go. Um, so thank you for so much uh, for making the time to be on the show. Um, so tell us a little bit about your work and, and, and your writing career so far. All right. Well, um, actually, my first book just came out uh, last April, and that was Promise of Blood. And uh, what I write is flintlock fantasy, uh, which is basically uh, epic fantasy that takes place in more of a Napoleonic-type era, um, but magic and muskets and all those fun things all put together. And, uh, yeah, I just uh, my second book's due out here in May, uh, The Crimson Campaign, and I am under contract for another four books from Orbit. Um, and I, uh, I also write some short fiction that I self-publish that's uh, all tie-ins to my uh, Powder Mage universe, and uh, that's about it. That's an interesting way to go about it, especially uh, given the uh, the recent Hugh Howey uh, furor over self-publishing versus publishing. It seems like you're saying, you know, some some things are good for self-publishing and, and some things I'm going to go the traditional route. Oh, oh yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I just, uh, I started with the idea, I did a short story, and I wrote it, and I thought, well, I'll put it out myself, see if people like it. And, uh, and I did, and people really responded well to it. And... Uh, then I uh, so I put out another one, and then in in December I got an idea for a novella, and from start to from the time I started writing it all the way until I put it out was six weeks. Wow! Um, what? So like, it was just the the ability to be able to just say I've got this really cool idea and have it out six weeks later, including cover art and everything. Uh, is pretty amazing. Well, first of all, writing that fast is yeah, pretty, pretty darn impressive. But then, yeah, being able to go through the entire publishing process, thats that would have been a, considered a miracle 20 years ago. Yeah. And, yep. and I, I find it tons of fun. You said you had the cover art and everything ready to go. Was that something you had planned in advance, or did that like did you find an artist who was who was perfect for it and you just kind of knew exactly what you wanted? How did, how did that come to pass? Um, yeah, it, it basically like that. I, I had actually about three months before I had been querying artists about, uh, about doing character design art and it, everybody turned out to be way more than I could afford for just my own little budget. Um, but I had a couple of them say, Hey, you know, uh, if you have anything in the future, you know, let me know. And there was one I particularly liked. And, uh, and he said, uh, he said, yeah, get back to me. And he was really cool about, you know, me not having the budget for it and very understanding and all that stuff. And so I emailed them just out of the blue for the novella and said, hey, uh, I just wrote this novella. Um, I've got a budget of X number of dollars. Uh, are you interested? And he wrote me back like four hours later and said, yeah, uh, I'll start Monday. Oh, that's awesome. We're, we're kind of going through a similar thing right now of working with an artist for the anthology that is is way probably above our price bracket but he's being <laughs> awesome about it because he he's he's like a great guy so we're, we're very yeah. excited about that too um but kind of jumping back into uh, oh and by the way audience members if you're watching um we have the q a app installed so if you want to leave us a question for brian um or you can also do so by pigging us in the irc chat room um so let us know if you want us to ask him anything uh but but tell me more about the promise of blood and exactly what's going on in the plot line of that book Okay, so Promise of the Blood, uh, it starts with a uh, coup d'etat. Um, the main character is a field marshal, uh, and he is what's called a powder mage. 
um, in this world of sorcery and things like that, he uh, he has the ability to manipulate gunpowder. He can shoot further than other people. He can imbibe it uh, to make himself faster and stronger. Oh. Um, and he's also an extremely talented tactician, experienced, and he's actually uh, a little over 60 years old, so he's not the typical young protagonist. Um, and it, so it starts off with him overthrowing his king and sending him to the guillotine. Uh, and, uh, and the rest of the series is the fallout from that. I kind of really like that it's not a typical chosen one, like young lad coming into his own, like kind of discovering who he is. This this sounds like a guy who kind of knows what he's about, and now yeah. he's kind of you know having to deal with the the act his actions um, at that point. And that's I think that that's a pretty cool perspective. I I wanted to do something very different, um, and and part of doing something different was having a much older protagonist. Now there are, there are four different viewpoints, um, uh, three of them major viewpoints, and uh, one of them is around twenty ish, and he's a little bit more typical, um, but the other one is in his mid forties, and uh, you know a family man and just a kind of a roly poly investigator. Uh, so, so you've got, uh, and then the, the fourth viewpoint is uh, a laundress that just, uh, you know, she's got, you know, no real powers, no real, you know, political abilities or anything like that. And so, so I take all these different kind of uh, out there characters and try to, you know, make it interesting. So, tell me a little bit about the powder mage. Uh, it, it, your main character is not the only powder mage, I take it. It's it's a regular thing in the world, right? It, it's a regular thing in the world. Um, one of the themes that I tried to play with a lot was the old versus the new, um, because you know if I'm looking, my inspiration is uh, you know the French Revolution, and uh, and so they're overthrowing the king. He he sends most of the nobility to the guillotine along with their king, and he also slaughters the king's royal cabal of uh, sorcerers that are more typically elemental wizards in the kind of D and D sense almost, um, and uh, and so it's it's an it's an old versus new thing. The, the powder mages nobody really likes them. There are several countries with where they uh, to be a powder mage gets you killed. Um, it's a death sentence, and uh, the uh, so it's um, yeah. It's, uh, you've got these powder mages are. They're coming up. They're the new thing, and uh, and all of the old people, all of the old uh, regimes fear that. It's like the new hotness. Exactly. <laughs> like those regular mages are out of it. Bring in the powder mages. They're the new powder you, mages. The new black. I, are you the uh, are one one of the only people doing gunpowder and majory combined? Uh, when I sold it. Neither I nor my agent nor my editor had any clue of anyone else doing anything like this, um, which was part of the draw for it. Um, and uh, since then, um, so, uh, a guy named Django Wexler uh, put out a book a few months after mine that is also Flintlock Fantasy. And uh, and I've met Django; he's very cool. And it's uh, and I've read his book, and it's excellent. Uh, and so it's, but I feel like, and I th I've heard of other things. Uh, out there, um, but in terms of straight-up epic fantasy that takes place in a very 1800s sort of era, mm -hmm. um, that the, me and Django are about it. That's so fascinating that 
two completely different authors, you know, within a very short period of one another would pick something so unusual to kind of, of cover. I'm not saying he copied you because I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying it's very interesting that that would happen. Like it, it, it seems so unlikely, but yet we, we do see that a lot in, um, it happens in the literary world all the time. Oh, I guess we were talking a lot about uh, film noir and angels recently. Um, mm -hmm. Three different authors, actually, who kind of jumped on on that idea around the same time and released books around the same Something time. Something in the human subconscious is just coming yeah. front. Yeah, it's, it's like the collective yeah. unconscious subconsciousness kind of, you know, something like that just floats to the surface, and then you start seeing that kind of thing. It's it's really weird. Yeah, yeah, it, it was a little strange to hear about it, and and I was nervous, and so I finally read it. And he had a completely different approach than I oh, did. Oh, that's good. That's and, great. And I was, I was relieved because it was both well done mm -hmm. and very different. So, you know, that's a, it's a cool to be able to kind of start a little subgenre. Totally. Um, I was going to say, now you guys have a subgenre. Yeah. So. <laughs> a subgenre of two. I like that. <laughs> yes. It's all it takes. We got a question from Curtis in the chat room uh, who wants to know why you picked the Napoleonic era as the timeline for your book. Uh, and he wants to know how much you're involving real history within the storylines or how much of it is just inspired by. Um, well, it's not historical fantasy. Um, it is second world. Uh, you know, it's, it's not um, I'm trying to think of who writes historical fantasy. Uh, it's not Naomi Novik. It's more like Brandon Sanderson. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so it's, yeah, it's a completely made up world, but certainly very inspired by, you know, the French revolution and that time period. I mean, my favorite books of all time are Limes and, uh, the Count of Monte Cristo. So that, and I thought, you know, I, my favorite genre is fantasy, epic fantasy. So why not take my favorite books and try to make them into sort of a epic fantasy? Absolutely. Yeah. That's great. And so what can we expect with the Crimson campaign? Oh gosh. Um, let's see. It's uh, it, basically, you know, it's, I'm, I'm a new author and, and this is my first uh, sequel of course. And so uh, it's, uh, I, I'm trying, I try to ratchet things up. Um, the uh, promise of blood. I've heard some people say they think it ends on a, a cliffhanger, but it's the first in a trilogy. So uh you should kind of expect that a little bit. Um, and, uh, and the Crimson Campaign is, is just uh, marching forward. Uh, in Promise of Blood, the, uh, Adro is the main country. They have been invaded by their southern neighbors. And uh, the Crimson Campaign is uh, Field Marshal Tomas striking back, basically. Got it. Uh, we got some questions that were submitted on our Goodreads thread when we let folks know we were doing this. Uh, Yakov has the first one. Something I felt you made good use of in Promise of Blood were time skips, which kept the story's pace where it needed to be while not letting it feel crammed into too short of an in-world time frame. Time skips, specifically longer ones where days or weeks are skipped, are something that I've always had difficulty working into my writing. So basically, I'd like to ask if you can share any insight as to how and when you decide to make use of time skips, especially the long ones? Um, honestly, there aren't many long ones. Uh, the entire trilogy takes place over the course of about eight to 10 months. Um, it's actually a very short time period. And book one, I'm trying to remember, is probably only around three months or so. Um, I tried to make it not feel like that 
Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's, I, I tend to write that kind of thing instinctually. Um, you know, I kind of try to feel for where it needs to, where we need to jump forward, what, uh, what kind of, what scenes aren't necessary. You know, what can I just, you know, sum up and move to the next interesting plot point? Well, that I've, I've seen that recently talked about a lot of when, when writers are being given advice to say only write what moves the plot forward. And it seems to make sense that when you get to the point where you're like, well, it's going to be a lot of sweeping for the next little while. Let's, <laughs> let's jump to something that's actually going to move the story along. Yeah, there have certainly been scenes that I've written and then looked at them and said, wow, that does not do anything for the reader at all. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to have to sum this whole scene up in like two sentences at the beginning of the next one. Well, that's very thoughtful of you. <laughs> Our next question comes from Rob, and he starts out by saying, oh, man, I really enjoyed Promise of Blood and can't wait for the Crimson Campaign. Uh, so I have to ask, snorting gunpowder? What inspired you to use gunpowder as a magical component? Um, either way, I really love your magic system. Um, so it, it's funny because the whole idea actually came about because I went and saw uh, Public Enemies with um, Johnny Depp. Mm -hmm. And I, and I thought, holy crap, I need to write a short story where there's, you know, sorcerers fighting with Tommy guns. Cause I think that would be really cool. And I, I worked on it a little bit and, uh, and I brainstormed with my wife a bunch and we, uh, we finally determined this isn't really going to work here in anything longer than a short story. Um, let's, uh, let's, let's see what else we can do with it. And then we watched um, Sharps Rifles. And I was like halfway through the first episode of Sharps Rifles, and I went, holy crap, this has got to be where it's going to take place. So it was, that was, it was, it was inspiration from beyond, sort of. Yeah. 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 Uh, Michael has a question. Without going into spoilers too much, what inspired you to end Promise of Blood the way you did? You mentioned it was, it was the cliffhanger. Uh, he says it was quite a badass ending, by the way. How goes work on Powder Mage novel number three? Um, a little two-parter well, there. Yeah, so let's see. Uh, I guess I'll answer the first part first. Uh, it, uh, basically, I needed to leave the book at a point at which it concluded what happens and what's going on in the first book. You know, the whole drive, uh, but left a bunch of questions and left us wondering what happens in book two. Um, you know, because uh, if you wrap everything up, there's no conflict for book two. Um, but, uh, you know, if you don't wrap anything up, then everybody's kind of pissed off at you. <laughs> well, sometimes people have, have you know, it, it's part of a trilogy, but it still is, feels kind of standalone. I think the, the first one that pops to my mind is uh, Lois McMaster Bujold, um, the first book in that, in, in the, um, oh, which trilogy is it? The one we read, Tom. Um, not the Vercosigan. Chalion, uh, Curse of Chalion. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that almost can be a standalone novel in itself, and then it kind of, you know, the next two books are in that world, but separate. Also, a uh, hundred thousand kingdoms, similar in in that regard as well. Um, a little more standalone-y. Um, so I guess it is it is possible, but a nice everyone loves a nice cliffhanger too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was the second half of that question? Uh, uh, he how just wants to know work. how how work on Powder Mage Three is going. Oh, right. Okay. It's actually going wonderfully. I, uh, I've written probably around 9,000 words in the last three days. Um, 
because I'm desperately trying to get it all finished for my agent manager to look at and tell me whether they hate my guts or not. Um, <laughs> sure. But uh, but uh, initial feedback from my agent is very good, and uh, and I'm really pleased with it. So uh, I think I mean it's it's weird to talk about because it's not going to be coming out for another year. Um, and uh, you know, Crimson Campaign, I I finished almost a year ago, so uh, it's kind of wow. a strange spot to think about. Yeah. You're yeah. cranking them out though. That's that's awesome. So are you going to stay in the Powder Mage universe? Or are you going to stay in the Flintlock subgenre, or do you think you'll just branch off and do something totally different? Uh, the immediate future is in the Flintlock universe, in the Powder Mage universe. It'll be um, I've got uh, the rest of this series to finish up, the rest of book three. And then I'm under contract for a sequel series, so it'll be a sequel trilogy, basically, um, and uh, that takes place ten years after the end of book three, and encompasses a whole different cast of characters, uh, with a few crossovers. Um, and uh, so that's you know that's my next probably four years. Uh, but uh, in between that, I want to just keep writing my short fiction, and you know people seem to have loved love them. Um, they're uh, they're doing very well. Um, the reception is great. So uh, you know, I'll, I'll just kind of try to keep filling things in, and eventually, probably while I'm working on book two of the next series, well, book one or two of the next series, I'll uh, I'll be kind of sketching in my head for the next series after that. Wow! Um, gotcha. And I I have no idea what that's going to be. Right. Whether it'll be the same universe or not. Well, we just kind of took Curtis B's next question, which was ex almost verbatim of what Tom asked. So I guess people inquiring minds wanted to know. Uh, but the next question comes from Michael. And, uh, oh, no, sorry. The next question comes from, actually, yes, also the same Michael. He says, as a fantasy author who studied under Brandon Sanderson, do you feel the need to differentiate yourself or distance yourself from his work at all? Um, would you say your relationship with Brandon was more casual, i.e. teacher-student, or personal, like mentor-protege? And have you found that association to be helpful or detrimental, uh, detrimental to your career? Um, a lot of questions. Yeah, that's, that's quite a bit here. So I don't feel the need to differentiate a little bit uh, too much. Um, you know, I, I think Brandon and I's stuff is is different. I've I've been compared to him, which is an immense compliment for me personally because I did study with him, um, and because he sells amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's uh, I don't. I don't think so. I, I've had one or two comments that people have made snide comments about me trying to, you know, try to uh, ride his coattails. And I really hope that doesn't ever come across to any of the fans or Brandon himself. Um, because I, I, I would be mortified if, if anyone thought that. Uh, and uh, so, but I personally try my best not to be, but I'm immensely complimented by anybody who, you know, says that I write like him. Um, and, uh, uh, I mean, and we were, our relationship was more of a kind of a teacher student. Um, you know, there were 30 kids in my class. I took his class many times. Um, it was a repeatable elective, uh, but, uh, and he knew who I was. And by the, the, I think the third or fourth time that I took his class, uh, because I was just trying to get credits. So I graduate. Uh, he he just said you don't come to class if you don't want to just hand in your your writing and I'll because you've taken the right lectures a bunch and um, Brandon was always very cool and very supportive he introduced me to his editor um, years and years before I got anywhere with anything publishable um, and uh, but uh, I actually 
finally got to see him again in Texas at Worldcon this last fall uh, for the first time in like four or five years since I had graduated. And we got to chat, and uh, he was he was very supportive, and he had just finished Promise of, reading Promise of Blood and uh, and gave me a blurb for it, which oh, kind wow, of nice. knocked my socks off. So, uh, okay. yeah, it was, it was, yeah, no, um, but th- that whole thing, I mean, it, it's wonderful. I've been very fortunate in being able to know him and learn from him. He's extremely intelligent, uh, both writer and businessman, uh, which is something I respect immensely. Nimrod actually wanted to know what you thought was the most important thing you took from his lessons. Um... Well, I was just saying he's a very good businessman, and I think that uh, I think it's a part of writing that a lot of people ignore. Um, a lot of you know, prospective authors, um, people that are trying to get their works published, they don't think about the fact that if they get their stuff published, they're going to need to read contracts, and they're going to need to make decisions, and they're going to need to try to talk to fans at conventions, on social media, and, and all sorts of things. Um, and that was one of the, I, uh, to me personally, that was some of the best stuff I learned from Brandon was learning how the inside of the industry works. Um, because I mean, even now I'm still learning new things every couple of weeks. And if I hadn't had that initial kind of knowledge dump from Brandon, I would, I would be floundering so badly. Did anything he taught you prepare you for Sam Sykes harassing you so much? <laughs> no, no, I, that's uh, it's okay though. I can handle Sam. He's, uh, yeah, he's he's just a. Apparently, he's been texting you during our interview. I see. Yeah, I noticed Sam. my phone flashing, and I thought, well, I wonder who that is. And uh, he's bragging yeah. about it on Twitter, which is the only reason I know that he. Oh, doing. Sam! <laughs> Kids these days. <laughs> see, I can no. make fun of him for being young. <laughs> well, well, it's actually fun because Sam and I are two of the youngest authors I know of. So we get mm-hmm. to be the, we get to be the young whippersnappers that nice. um, all the old men like Doug Hewlett shake their fists at. Um, <laughs> or apparently so, old women uh, like Veronica Belmont shake their fists at. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, we have our, our next question is from Robert J. Bennett. And uh, he wants to know, do you oh, ever sit heavens. down on your porch and smoke an old timey pipe when some, while someone <laughs> plays a flute? Only when Robert plays it for me. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, you'll need you'll need Robert to play the flute. That makes sense. Uh, and then Sam Sykes posted a question: uh, Why aren't people making more cake for Sam Sykes? Um, because he's not here to eat it. I made him a cake the other day, and he didn't show up. Yeah. Oh. I why didn't, seriously why don't know what his problem is. Why didn't no respect. No respect for the cake. The cake was not. Was the cake a lie? That's important to know. No, the cake was not a lie. Okay. Bad video game reference. I mean, good video game, bad video game reference in this context. Um, well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Um, where can people follow all of your work online? Oh, gosh. Um, let's see. Uh, they can follow me on Twitter at Brian T. McClellan. Um, I had to put the T in there because somebody took Brian McClellan. Um, and uh, on Facebook at, I think it's just Brian McClellan. Um, and uh, then my website is brianmcclellan.com. And you were mentioning that you had short stories up somewhere. Or is that just uh, in magazines, or how how would people find those? No, I uh, yeah, I, I just self-publish those. They can get them on um, Amazon, Kobo, uh, I uh, the iBook Store, and um, what's the other one? Nook. Um, they can get them anywhere they heart their hearts desire. 
uh, and I've got two short stories and one novella that are all set in the uh, Powder Mage universe. And so when is the Crimson Campaign uh, set to come out? That one comes out on May 6th. All right. Excellent. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. It was so much fun. Thanks a lot, Brian. It was great talking to you. And if you guys want to follow us, our email address is feedback at swordandlaser.com. We are Sword and Laser over on Twitter. All of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com. And if you want to call and leave a voicemail, the phone number is 415-7-SWORD-6. We'll see you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.